Hello to all of our listeners. This is Eurasia Chat, a bi-weekly podcast in which my colleague Aigirim Fluhanova and I, Alisher Haminov, lead our listeners through the most current topics in Central Asia and the uh, neighboring regions. So this week, we would like to start with some brief updates about what's happening in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, then broader topics. The first one is from Kazakhstan, where separatist moods uh, have uh, claimed much public attention. Then we will switch to Uzbekistan, where a lot of public attention has focused on an orphanage where authorities have identified cases of child abuse, including sexual abuse. We will conclude by discussion of Tajikistan's foreign policy. Feeling isolated in the Central Asian neighborhood, Tajikistan is reaching out across the sea, Caspian Sea, trying to befriend Azerbaijan and also Turkmenistan. Great. I would like just to briefly update our listeners on the topics that we talked uh, in our previous episode about the alleged uh, Kyrgyz passports uh, that are being given to Russian citizens. There was recently an article from Radio Free Europe where they also found a company, Russian company called Open the World, in which they actually openly promoted getting Kyrgyz passports for as little as $1,500, and it takes up to 18 months. So even if we don't hear the official confirmation yet in Kyrgyzstan, Alisher, I think something is going on in Kyrgyzstan. And I wanted to update our listeners about the situation in Kazakhstan. We have the Ministry of Ecology and Natural Resources, which confirmed that it had filed a claim against the Kashagan Oil Consortium, which includes ExxonMobil, Eni, Italian uh, Corporation, and Shell, and other members of uh, the so-called North Caspian Operating Company. So they're being sued for environmental violations. The Kazakh government is seeking 5.1 billion U.S. dollars. The move has sent shockwaves among investors, so that everybody's worried about what's going to happen to this consortium. The thing is, this consortium started about a decade and a half ago, but because of some delays, uh, the production or pumping of oil has not fully started until like two two years ago. So Kazakh government has been livid over the delays. And so this environmental fine comes at this backdrop of dissatisfaction with the consortium's performance in Kazakhstan. That's interesting because like in Kazakhstan, we don't really hear much about the investor's point of view. But I think that the news that Kazakh government is seeking uh, some compensation for ecological damage is quite uh, supported by the public because every year, few times a year, we hear news how mm-hmm. animals in Caspian Sea are dying, how birds are dying because of oil spill and all these ecological disasters, uh, mainly in uh, Western Kazakhstan. The general public would rather support this move. Today, uh, we are going to talk about a separate issue that is happening in Kazakhstan that has claimed a lot of attention internally. Aigurim, could you please provide the details of the separatist claims that are coming from the northern part of Kazakhstan, right? It has happened recently. Well, not recently, actually. It was almost a month ago, but um, we didn't know about this up until we saw the video uploaded on the internet. And um, yeah, there was a public outcry. So basically what was in the video is um, 
a group of some activists uh, from the northern mm-hmm. city in Kazakhstan called Petropavlovsk. And in Kazakhstan, usually the cities that are bordering in the north with Russia and in the east are more Russian-speaking rather than, uh, for example, western and southern part of Kazakhstan are more Kazakh-speaking. So there was always this deep-rooted anxiety among Kazakh people that in northern parts of Kazakhstan or in eastern parts there are a lot of people who are pro-Russian and who supported, for example, annexation of Crimea and support currently the war that is led by Russia um, against Ukraine. And um, yeah, let me come back to the video. So in this video, this um, these activists basically declared so-called independence from uh, Kazakhstan. They call themselves mm-hmm. People's uh, Council or, or something. And they basically claimed that Kazakhstan is like a fictitious country, which is overtaken by some oligarchs amid this war and all other anxieties that are caused by our neighbors. A lot of people on social media in Kazakhstan are now saying that uh, security services are not taking this issue seriously, that it was like that for a few weeks, unknown. And uh, while some activists that are going outside can be arrested right. five min- in five minutes or even before they reach the public space. There are also discussions to rename these northern cities. For example, there is a petition now to rename Petropavlovsk to Kazakh mm-hmm. name called Kazaljar. And um, I already see a lot of uh, Kazakh people like refuse to name Petropavlovsk and say so Kazaljar. The, so, yeah. How credible is the threat of separatism in northern Kazakhstan. How organized or how powerful are groups that are supposedly calling for uh, or agitating for uh, separation from Kazakhstan and and so forth? So are there a real threat to Kazakh government? I think the real problem is that we don't know how powerful the separatist mood is because Mm -hmm. this issue is not discussed publicly and we're not aware uh, how many people may be cooperating with, I don't know, Russian security services. Because, for example, uh, political analysts, quite well-known political analyst Dostan Satpaev says that currently the situation in Kazakhstan reminds that of Ukraine in 2014, where there was like a lot of gaps in terms of the security issues. And it's it's not clear how powerful these groups are because in Ukraine it was known that some of the people who were born in Ukraine and lived there their whole life, they were actually helping and cooperating with uh, Russians to do this internal activity inside the country. I think um, it should be taken seriously, but if we just judge by the video that was uploaded, I don't think that it's, it's something that looks pretty serious because most of the people on the video... They look quite bored and talk with this bureaucratic dry language. It's not like they're passionate about something. And, you know, most of these people who say these separatist-related things, they usually get away saying uh, something on camera that they're sorry, that they didn't mean that, and uh, they are released. But this current case, I think, now is under uh, Committee of National Security, Mm -hmm. So we will see how it will evolve.
Wow. So I actually wanted to talk about other separatist movements or groups in other parts of Central Asia. For example, in Uzbekistan, there are fears of Karakalpak separatists. And in Kyrgyzstan, there are fears of ethnic Uzbek separatism. So it seems like the whole region has fears of separatism from ethnic minority groups. And so and this complicates things in, in, in this whole entire region. And it seems like um, uh, in Kazakhstan, you're saying that Kazakh government has begun to take things more seriously. But the question is, why now? Well, I think it's because uh, Kazakh government in general is very cautious when it comes to uh-huh. the issues related to big neighbors like Russia and China. They, of course, don't want to anger them. And that's why they try to like make this deal not as public as possible. But I think given that the public is already pretty anxious witnessing what is happening now in Ukraine, this is, um, I guess they had no choice but to take this seriously and show that they're doing some actions. But also it's important to note um, that uh, you can read it in Eurasianet. There is an article about this separatist issue in uh, Kazakhstan that also the government is using this fear, this deep-rooted fear and anxiety that, look, we are a small country squeezed between two big neighbors, Russia and China, and we need to like save our um, sovereignty, we need to save our territory, so you better listen to the government because we're trying our best to like navigate in this difficult reality and um, you know just keep our country safe. So this is also important uh, discourse because government always uses this this idea to kind of silence the protest, silence the development of democratic movements and uh, some political activists. Wow. So switching to the situation in Uzbekistan, I'm giving, we have a very explosive situation in Uzbekistan. It is related to what happened in the city of Urgenj in Khorezm province, which is Uzbekistan's westernmost uh, part. And so on 31st March, Irina Matvienko, this well-known blogger and activist, published a report about flagrant case of sexual violence against children who reside in this orphanage in Urgenj city. So according to Nemalchi.us, which uh, is run by Irina Matvienko, turns out for the past year, the administration of this orphanage was selling three underage girls to some local officials for sexual favors. So these girls were being used as prostitutes to please local officials. And that happened a year ago. So Irina Matvienko, she was trying to raise public awareness about what's happening in Urgench. Uh, she used a lot of uh, public platforms, but not much attention. You see, in early February, she talked about this flagrant case, which was being investigated by the authorities, which was not publicized. She raises issue at a gathering involving members of Uzbek parliament and some uh, government officials. And so from what Matvienko told Uzbek journalists, those participants at that meeting, they kind of paid attention to it, but they weren't very much interested in making it uh, like a big deal. That has changed on 
April 1st, after the publication of this report, Uzbek Children's Ombudsman said that the situation is scandalous. And more importantly, Saida Mirzioyeva, who heads a Department of Public Affairs under the president's office, she's also president's daughter, she got involved and things began to change. And so a lot of attention and this, this, this case has become kind of publicized all over social media, outpouring of public anger. So now Uzbekistan is involved in this public discussion of the situation. It's really outrageous. I, it even reached the like news outlets in Kazakhstan. I was really shocked and really angry inside when I was reading all the details. There was detail that um, the youngest girl was as little as 15. And when she didn't want to provide these sexual favors to these local government officials, the people in orphanage started mm-hmm. to beat with a stick her little brother. And, you know, all these details are just crazy to hear how much pressure and harassment these little girls went through. And they were providing these sexual favors. And these government officials apparently provided the orphanage with food and other state subsidies that uh, helped to sustain this orphanage. So yeah, this is an outrageous case. And I hope that these uh, government officials who were not really in jail, by the way, only the person who was in the orphanage dealing with these government officials got five years in jail. The perpetrators of sexual violence against children, meaning three local officials, they did not get severe punishment. They, the, the Uzbek court sentenced them to about a year and a half of imprisonment, but they were let go. This is what stands out, and this is what's causing a lot of public anger in Uzbekistan and beyond. The second issue that stands out about this case is that why all the efforts of Irina Matvienko initially did not cause reaction from government officials, you know, from the prosecutor's office. So only after Irina published the report and Saida Mirzioyeva read about it and personally got involved, things have started to kind of move and shake. So there's this discussion that, hey, does it have to take president's daughter, you know, to make such cases public? Why can't we as a society deal right away why we didn't know about this? So there's a lot of discussion about these things. Unfortunate reality, right? Unless someone at the top of the government is paying attention to that, these issues are systematically being silenced in, in these cases, and the most vulnerable people are suffering. It turns out that there were numerous other cases of child abuse, including sexual abuse, in orphanages, schools, uh, various like boarding houses in Uzbekistan. But the thing is, all of those cases, they were kind of hush-hush. Uzbek authorities blocked information about those cases in order to, you know, preserve Uzbekistan's good reputation. But now things have changed. It seems like Uzbek authorities, uh, headed by Saida Mirziyoyeva, president's daughter, they are willing to show to public these problems uh, and to kind of uh, point public attention to cases of violence. So they're not afraid of getting their reputation hurt. Saida Mirziyoyeva's arrival and her preoccupation with gender-based violence has a lot to do with with these uh, with the uncovering of these cases. As you know, in late March, on March 23rd, Uzbek parliament passed a law stiffening punishment for domestic uh, violence. And many people, they link this decision 
with the fact that Saida Mirzioyeva has support for this. It was her initiative, actually. So, again, there's discussion that why does it have to take this one high-level official, you know, to change things? And if she wasn't the daughter of the president, would authorities take gender-based violence, sexual violence more seriously? This is the question that is being asked among people in Uzbekistan. Alisher, do you think Saida Mirzioyeva is becoming more and more influential and powerful? That's right. She's uh, one of the most influential officials now. And I think that gender-based violence is one of her pet projects. And I think that um, without her involvement, the issue would not get a lot of attention from the Uzbek government. A lot of high-level Uzbek officials who are men, they are skeptical of Saida Mirzioyeva and her preoccupation with gender violence. I think that Uzbek society is very conservative. They don't like when officials uh, air out Uzbekistan's problematic areas. So I think there's a lot of uh, distrust of Saida Mirzioyeva, but I think that she has a lot of support from her father and most importantly from what I heard, from her mother, who is also personally involved with the issue of domestic violence and gender-based violence. And I think that without support from these high-level figures, uh, Uzbekistan's uh, gender activists, they would be jailed, they would be fined, they would be like their mouths will be shut. Good to hear at least this way we have some attention to this really rampant endemic problem in all Central Asian countries where women are treated poorly and their rights are not protected at all. Alisher, you you told me recently that Tajikistan is feeling kind of isolated in Central Asia and is reaching out actually to Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan to improve relations with Turkic-speaking neighbors. Why does Tajikistan feel isolated? What is the reason and why reaching those two countries for help? Tajik President Umar Rahman has this, uh, he's full of himself. He thinks that he's the longest serving president in the region, which is true. And he thinks that he deserves far more respect than the neighbors are willing to afford him. So he's had bad relations with Kyrgyzstan because of border wars. Relations with Uzbekistan have been strained because Uzbekistan is friendly with the Taliban and Rahman despises of them. Uh, relations with Afghanistan are really problematic because Rahman doesn't recognize the Taliban. Kazakh-Tajik relations, they're also kind of uncertain. Most importantly, Tajikistan's relations with Russia have been bumpy because Rahman complained of the fact that Russia doesn't take Tajikistan more seriously. So he was feeling isolated over the past several years and, and months. So, And he's been reaching out to Azerbaijan and to Turkmenistan, these two Turkic-speaking countries. Tajikistan is, has been wary of this Turkic Union discussion. You know, when uh, Turkey hosted this meeting of Organization of Turkic States, some Tajik uh, analysts in Tajikistan, they were openly critical of this idea of Turkic collaboration, which excludes Tajikistan. Tajikistan is, of course, Persian-speaking country. So there were these suspicions of all these deals among Turkic-speaking countries. So it seems like Rahman now is trying to really improve relations with Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan so that Tajikistan will not be excluded by the Turkic-speaking countries. Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev was in Dushanbe last week, 
and he had really cordial meeting with uh, with Rahman. And next week, Rahman is expecting Turkmen President Serdar Berdimuhamedov and Tajikistan expressed support for the Stapi project, which is uh, a a route for exporting oil and gas from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan to onwards to Pakistan and India. That is very interesting. I mean, I knew that Tajikistan is not a Turkic-speaking country because they speak mostly Farsi, but I didn't know that because of the language, they kind of feel isolated and suspicious what other Turkic-speaking countries are doing. Parviz Mullajanov, well-known Tajik analyst, political analyst, he actually wrote a commentary published by Asia Plus, uh, a Tajik news agency, about how Tajikistan feels about this pan-Turkic sentiments that are now in full force in, in Central Asia. Uh, Mullajanov said that Tajikistan has been wary of pan-Turkism in, in Central Asia because pan-Turkism has been associated with anti-Tajik state feeling sentiments. So some pan-Turkic citizens in Central Asia believe that there are no such thing as Tajiks, actually, according to Mullah Jonov. They think that it's a, Tajiks are Turkic speakers who were forced to adopt Persian language. So, so the, these are some of the claims made by some pan-Turkic uh, activists. So, and Mullah Jonov said that Tajikistan has been wary of these associations. He said that Tajikistan is not afraid of Turkic collaboration, stronger unity, but it doesn't like when some pan-Turkic people deny Tajik governments or Tajik history. I wanted to ask you, again, what do ordinary Kazakh people think of Tajikistan? Well, I think that in general, we don't know much about Tajikistan. It's like not so many people visit Tajikistan, but also those who do, maybe they're not really aware of all these peculiarities within the country. Mm-hmm. I have some friends from Tajikistan, but we never talk about politics and other things. And we just talk about language or some, I don't know, goals about the future. And I know a lot of my Tajik friends are in Russia now or became Russian citizens. So this is also another area of, I guess, Tajik uh, policy, right? Because a lot of citizens of Tajikistan have agreement with Russia to have double citizenship, Russian citizenship. And I'm sure it's also affecting somehow the policy decisions of Tajikistan. This has been Eurasia Chat Podcast with your hosts Elshar Hamida and Agirin Tolyuhanova. And for our next episode, actually, we want to talk about labor camps. Alisher will go to Jalalabad and talk to a person who was enslaved for 32 years in Kazakhstan. He is himself an ethnic Uzbek from Kyrgyzstan. Alisher will try to find out the details about his experience, talk to local people and authorities. So tune in and listen to our next episode.